very, very hopeful word for us as people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, grant us your spirit again. Help us to take in the wonder, the stunning wonder of what it is you are saying here to us, we ask. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to spend a couple of weeks on this passage because of some of the, frankly, dicey things that are said here. And what we want to do this week is, is sort of look at this from a global perspective or that 30,000-foot perspective, if you will, and then next week drill down into some of the details, particularly verse 22 and this, 21 and 22, but particularly 22, this, this hard, hard-to-digest contrast between God on the one hand desiring to show his wrath, but then on the other hand intending to show and make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. It's tough stuff. It's dicey. It's hard. And we want to look particularly at that next week. But what we want to do this week is get it, get it into some, some context and some perspective. So this is kind of the global View and, and as we do that, let me let me offer a bit of uh, a bit of autobiography here, um, just to illustrate something. It's May 1970. 300 or so students have occupied the ROTC building at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan a little town which is neither a mountain nor particularly pleasant, especially in February in upper-central Michigan. 300 students in the ROTC building. I'm one of those students. I'm a freshman in college. Occupying the ROTC building is a protest statement. You remember, some of you, the 60s and early 70s? Others of you have read about it. (laughs) I'm one of those students, and it was a watershed experience for me, and here's why. Rightly, wrongly, confused, admittedly self-absorbed, all of the rest of that stuff that 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds are. Deep in my heart and soul was a longing and a desire Deep in my heart and soul was a longing and a desire. And that longing, that desire, though I couldn't articulate it, didn't have any idea where it came from, that longing, that desire was the desire to see an end to injustices, to racisms, the various maladies that plague the human condition and human culture. Again, 18 years old, 19 years old. I don't know if it was Will Rogers or who it was who said, when I was 20, I thought my father was a fool. When I was 30, I couldn't believe how much he had learned. That's the longing that was buried deep in my heart. A desire to see the world be a better place. 
But here's what happened in that watershed experience over those three or four days in that ROTC building. These students all came together to make a statement to accomplish this mission of shutting down the university, and it happened. The university was shut down. The statement was made. But once the students made their statement and the university was shut down, here was the stunning, remarkable thing that broke upon me, and I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't give expression to what I was seeing. But what I saw was these people, these 300 students, not knowing what to do next and being deeply conflicted among themselves about what to do next. The anarchists wanted to burn the building down. The pacifists wanted to stage a sit-in, a protracted sit-in. Everybody in between leaned in one direction or the other. But what was so interesting is how these 300 students representing these different ideologies turned upon each other. Turned upon each other. And the vitriol and the animosity... And, and the mean things that were spoken by one person against another stunned me. And here was the watershed realization that only years later was I able to give language to. I realized the problems facing human culture and civilization are much, much deeper than any political or economic or fiscal or social solution. The problems facing human beings are human beings. And my question is, what is it that is big enough, powerful enough, compelling enough, strong enough to overcome deep, Deep divisions among races, classes, socioeconomic strata, political ideologies. What is big enough, powerful enough, strong enough to overcome to the extent that even the bitterest of enemies would live in peace? And beyond living in peace, would in fact love each other. Folks, I want to tell you, that's where we are in Romans chapter 9. That is where Paul has led us. He has led us to that place. I don't think it's possible for us to imagine how stunning are the words of Romans 9:22 to 26 what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews alone but also from the gentiles what Are you kidding me? 
and to take up the imagery that Paul employed and to which we referred and, and, and about which we spoke last, last week, to take up the imagery of a mass of clay, a lump of clay, which in context can only be understood to be representing the whole of fallen mankind, that God out of that lump of clay would extract bits of clay, little pieces of clay, form them, fashion them to be vessels of his mercy. The Jews would have said, Absolutely, that's who we are. Nuke the Gentiles. Nuke them. It's what they deserve. But how stunning it is. How stunning it is that the apostle would say, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It's stunning, folks. It's stunning. That's what Paul has been arguing up to this place. How did we get here? Let's, let's just ask a few questions here quickly. How did we get here? How did we get to this place in this argument? Well, here's how we got here. Paul has been arguing from the very beginning what is the heart and the soul of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that man, woman, child, whether Jew or Gentile, man, woman, or child is accepted by God, not on the basis of ethnicity, not on the basis of law keeping, not on the basis of religious observance, but rather solely, exclusively, entirely, alone, by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is it that makes a person a Christian? It's not ethnicity. It's not your law keeping. It's not your record of righteousness. It's not the bad stuff you didn't do and the good stuff that you did do. It's not the fact that you were baptized someplace, whether in a good Presbyterian church where they do it to babies or a good Baptist church where they don't and only do it to those who profess faith in Christ. Water doesn't save you. Neither did circumcision. Your theology doesn't save you. It didn't save Israelites. Your record of righteousness doesn't save you. There is one thing alone that saves you, whether Jew or Gentile, and that is reliance upon Jesus Christ. He alone, He alone is the means by which we gain access into this grace in which we stand and because of which we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 1 through 3. Well, okay, Paul. Another question then. If that's how it happens, if ethnicity and, and my record of righteousness and religious performance, if these are not the things that save me, what advantage then does a Jew have? He asked that question in Romans 3, verse 1. The question is in his mind very much as he responds with the opening verses of Romans 9. What advantage does the Jew have? Let me tell you, 
The Jew had every advantage. In Romans 3, Paul reduces it, distills it down to the oracles of God. What is that? The Word of God. God speaking true things, eternally true things, inviolably true things, into the community which He created by His grace. There's huge advantage in that. To have the very Word of God in your midst... You know why we tend to put pulpits in the center of Presbyterian churches? Do you know why we elevate the Word of God above the table of God? Because it is the Word of God that gives definition to everything else. It is the Word of God that defines who God is. It defines who we are. It defines what God has done for us and is doing in us and will accomplish. Lose this book, you lose everything. Had a tragic exchange this morning. An exchange that too many of us can identify with. The tragic realization that when the Word of God is lost, The gospel is lost. And when the gospel is lost, the church is no longer the church. There's huge advantage to having the oracles of God and all of these other things that the Apostle Paul enumerates in Romans chapter 9. The prophets, the covenants, the glory, the adoption, the promises, the patriarchs, and even the Christ who is the one promised in all of those oracles. Tremendous advantage. I said this several weeks ago. It bears repeating. It bears repeating that these little covenant children who are being born in our midst, isn't this fun? The Turner twins, the McShay baby, and soon the Middleton baby, to be born in an environment like this is a tremendous advantage. But it isn't the environment that saves you. It is the one who inhabits the environment who saves you. It is Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul. Then another question. How do you account, Paul, how do you account for all of these Jews who've had this advantage, who've had these oracles and all of these promises Paul, how do you account for the fact that so many of them don't believe? They don't embrace this Messiah you're holding up, this Jesus of Nazareth as the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament promise. Has God's word failed? Has God's promise failed? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Verses 6 and 7. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. Paul's saying, no, absolutely not. Just because there are large numbers of people who are not embracing this gospel that I'm preaching does not mean... That God's promise has failed, that his purpose has failed, 
that his word has failed. In point of fact, it is now, and frankly has always been the case, that the vast majority of Israel have not truly believed. It's that way now, in Paul's day. And Paul cites the Old Testament to prove his case that it has always been that way. Look at verses 27 and following. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. What Paul is saying is that this phenomenon that you're observing right now, where the multitudes of Jews, perhaps even the vast majority of Jews, are not embracing this Messiah, this is not a new phenomenon. This is sadly what has characterized Israel across its centuries. And he cites Hosea as a proof text for making his point. I think I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. Fully one-third of all of the Old Testament citations across Paul's letters are to be found in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Why is that? Because he wants these folks to understand the things he is saying are grounded in the prophetic scriptures, the Old Testament. It's always been the case. Sadly, tragically, that widespread unbelief has characterized the life of Israel. He bleeds over it. He weeps over it. His heart breaks over it. Verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, I could be, if only I could be accursed for the sake of my unbelieving believing brothers. So his heart breaks about this. But it is the truth that unbelief has characterized the life of national Israel for centuries. And his promise then is fulfilled. His word is fulfilled. His purpose then is fulfilled in this remnant according to faith. That's where the promises are fulfilled. In true Israel, And how does true Israel come into existence? That's why through these verses the Apostle Paul talks about election and talks about mercy. Remember, it's a common lump, a lump that is made up both of Jew and Gentile. Romans 3, Paul makes very clear that all alike, Jew and Gentile, are under sin, common problem, pervasive problem, same lump. But God, who is rich in mercy, you see, mercy is the thing that explains a remnant in Israel. Mercy, God who is rich in mercy, by his mercy, he chooses out of this fallen ethnic group those whom he will save. So that it is not a function of him who runs but it is a function of God who has mercy. That's how you explain that there is any true faith in Israel at all. An electing, merciful God. But here's the thing that is staggering. 
Here's the thing that is stunning. God has a greater desire, a desire much larger, far more majestic than merely saving out of Israel a remnant for himself. By the same mercy that has secured that remnant's salvation, God intends to create a new man, a new people, a new a new Israel made up of Jew and of Gentile. That's what he's saying in verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, but in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared hand for glory, what if God, wanting to demonstrate and manifest the greatness, the majesty, the glory of his mercy from this common lump, extracted from that common lump, from both Jew and Gentile, those upon whom he would display and pour out This mercy. What if he were to do that? It's mercy, remember? It's not merit, it's mercy. Mercy is needed because of demerit, whether Jew or Gentile. But God, wanting to put his mercy on display, extracts from this lump those whom he will form and fashion and shape into vessels to contain and display His glory, not only from among the Jews, but from among the Scots and the Irish and the Vietnamese and the Tanzanians and from the Romans, those despicable Romans. He would extract and form and fashion into a new people so that his mercy might be put on display. That's what Paul's saying here. God creating, fashioning a new people. And what you need to know and need to understand, and I'm going to give you references and I don't have time for us to look at all of them, but what you need to understand is that this is not a new idea. You don't get to the cross and get on the other side of the cross and find suddenly that there is this new idea that the Gentiles are going to be incorporated into the people of God. It's not a new idea. It is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. Whether by explicit prophetic teaching or by example. Do you ever wonder about Rahab the harlot living in Jericho? Do you ever wonder about Ruth the Moabitess who becomes the mother of David's father who becomes David the king? The grandmother of David the king is a Moabitess. One of the most despised ethnic groups in the history of Israel. It's buried throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 12 verses 1 and 2. The first promise to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The intent from the beginning in giving Abraham a promise The promise of a seed, which Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, is fulfilled not in the numbers of descendants that Abraham has, but in the specific descendant that Abraham has, the Christ. The whole purpose of God making this first promise to Abraham, promising him that seed was so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. You see this promise repeated at least four times throughout Genesis. Genesis 22, 18 and other places. It's buried throughout the Old Testament both by example and by prophetic teaching. How about this one? Isaiah 19, verses 23 to 25. You know... If anything were calculated to get Isaiah stoned, this would be it. If anything were calculated to get Isaiah cut in half, sawn in two, this passage would be it. These three verses. Verse 23. In that day. In what day? little sidebar. Whenever you see that language, in that day, in those days, at that time, usually, unless the context makes clear differently, it is a reference to the Messianic age. In what day? In the day of the Messiah. In the day of the promised anointed one. In that day. What's going to happen in that day? There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt. So far, so good. Israel's got a lot of history with that stuff happening. Right? Israel's right between Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest. The main highway from Assyria to Egypt goes through Israel's land. Who gets trampled underfoot as Egypt and Assyria compete with one another for the whole region? Arch enemies of Israel. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third. The third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. And blessed be Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Look, if you live in Isaiah's day, with all of this Egypt and Assyria stuff in your history, this is not a message you want to preach. This is like Jonah being asked to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and preach the gospel. 
to the vilest of enemies that Israel had at that time. And the reason Jonah didn't go is because he knew that God was merciful. And if he went and preached the gospel in Nineveh, Nineveh would repent. And he did not want their repentance. He wanted their destruction. Entrust this word to Isaiah and say, go and be well fed, stay warm. I'm not hanging out with you, dude. And yet that is the Old Testament vision of the work of God. That God, beginning with promises made to Abraham, enlarged across the pages of the Old Testament, would have in view the redemption, not of a particular people, but the redemption of the nations. Even even the most vile and despicable enemies that Israel has ever had. Here's a couple more passages. I'll just give this to you for you to read. Acts 15, verses 16 to 17. It's a citation from Amos. It's a citation made in the context of the first church council, the council at Jerusalem, where the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles is being evaluated. And as the church evaluates the legitimacy of the gospel to the Gentiles, it makes the determination that Gentiles do not need to keep the law of Moses or be circumcised in order to gain admission into the people of God. And James, citing this passage from Amos, Amos 9, 11 through 12, James speaks these words, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What is James doing? James is citing Old Testament prophetic teaching, a prophetic teaching which says the day is coming when David's tents will be rebuilt, when David's city will be rebuilt, and with whom will that city be populated, Jew and Gentile, without distinction. That's what God is about, friends. That's what God has been about from the very beginning, to extract out of this fallen mass of humankind a treasured people, a people for his own possession. Galatians 3, verses 27 to 29. Just just one more passage after this Galatians passage. Galatians three twenty seven to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no longer 
slave or free. There's no longer male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Is Paul saying that ethnic distinctions don't exist anymore? Of course not. Is he saying that gender distinctions don't exist anymore? Of course not. I look around this room, I see men, I see women. Is he suggesting that the distinction between the free man and the slave no longer obtains. Absolutely not. They are there. Here's the beauty. Here's the wonder. Here's the glory of the gospel. When the gospel comes, old divisions, old animosities, old hatreds, old bitternesses melt before the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They don't matter. Ephesians 2, this is the last one. But now in Christ Jesus, this is verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Both. Who's the both? Jew and Gentile. Those who were far off and those who were near. Those who didn't have the benefits, those who did. He's made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Pick a place in the world. I've read editorials which suggest pretty cogently, pretty compellingly, that the reason Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics aren't quibbling with each other anymore is because they don't want to be associated with deeper forms of terrorist activity. Pick a place. Ireland? Those divisions are still there. You know the U2 song where the streets have no names? If you go to Belfast... The streets have names, and you know when you have passed from Protestant Belfast to Catholic Belfast, and Bono has a vision of a kingdom in which the streets have no stinking names, where former divisions are gone and abolished, and Paul has the same vision. And how are those distinctions abolished? Black, white, rich, poor, Irish Catholic, Irish Protestant, Jew-Palestinian, Iranian, Iraqi, Sunni, Shia. Folks, one place. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has a vision for. That's what Paul is caught up in. That is what Paul wants to magnify when he says, I want to magnify my ministry, my ministry to the Gentiles. Why? Because his ministry, the ministry of a Jew among the Gentiles, magnifies the glory of the grace and mercy of God who is extracting from the peoples of the earth a people for his own possession. My friends, 
the day that Paul longed for and the day that Jesus died for is a day that has not yet come. But there's a place, there's a place to catch the scent, the aroma of that day that is coming. And it is the church of Jesus Christ. That's the only place you're going to find the aroma of a mercy so big, so powerful, so high, so wide, so deep, so long that former divisions and distinctions melt before it. The day is coming. And what the apostle longed for and what Jesus died for will come to fruition. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. And they all wore the same clothing the white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only thing big enough, powerful enough, strong enough to melt the divisions that separate people is the cross of Jesus Christ. E pluribus unum. Out of the many, one, one people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, how thankful we are that by your mercy and grace we have been numbered among this innumerable company of people. Jew and Gentile, the objects of your saving mercy. Oh, Jesus, overcome in my heart the biases and prejudices that are lodged there. Overcome the patronizing attitudes that I harbor in my heart toward those made in your image and redeemed by your grace and do it for all of us. That some scent, some aroma of this gospel of grace and mercy might be detected here so that you might be praised 
In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing this incredible hymn, number 457, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace, 457. Thank you.